Uh, we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount this summer, and today we're in Matthew 5. At the very end of Matthew 5, we've made it through um, one-third of the Sermon on the Mount, which I'm grateful for. So at the end of the chapter, this is what Jesus says, and if you would stand with me to hear the Word of God, Matthew 5, verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. And may God bless this reading and preaching of his word. Uh, On October 19th, 2017, a group of scientists in Hawaii discovered what appeared to be a comet passing planet Earth. But the closer they looked at it, they realized that the more strange it was, it was something more than a comet. The object was huge, it was about a quarter of a mile long, uh, but it had a strange shape. It was very thin and long, it was shaped like a cigar, or perhaps like a a spaceship. Um, It was very brightly colored, which means that it was made of hard materials, uh, rocks, or even possibly metals, kind of like an alien spacecraft. Um, And it was traveling extremely fast. It was going 85,700 miles per hour. And it was not maintaining that speed. It was actually accelerating. Um, It flew by Earth. It slingshotted around the sun. And then it left our solar system. Uh, The object was named uh, Oumuamua. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. That's a Hawaiian word meaning messenger from afar. And to this day, there's still a lot of controversy surrounding what this object was. It's beyond dispute that this object was more than an average comet. Everyone now agrees that it was at least an interstellar object, uh, and that means that it's not from our solar system. It came from somewhere else entirely, and as far as I know, it's the first interstellar object that we've ever observed. Most scientists think that it was just a fancy space rock, but there are some who think that it was even more than that. And I share this story because today we're talking about the more of Christian love. Uh, Jesus says here that gospel love, Christian love, is something more. It's more than any, any other kind of love that's encountered on earth, because, really because it's not from earth at all. It has heavenly origins. It does not originate here, but it originates from heaven. Jesus says in verse uh, 47, he says, If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? And that that word is so key to this passage. Christian love is something more. It's something greater. And my prayer for St. John Church is that our community would be something more than than the other communities that can be found in in Over the Rhine and in urban Cincinnati, Uh, the other things that people gather around, that, that this church would be like that, but it would just have something more. And when our friends and neighbors encounter us as Christians, they may not be able to put their finger on it, but they recognize that something more is going on in your life. Uh, And in this community, something that's not of this world, 
And especially when people get swept up in the community that we're building, the love that they encounter is something more. Jesus says that it must be. So Christian love is something more than the love available on this earth. So what is that more? What makes it more? And we're going to look at three things this morning from this passage. The nature of Christian love, the boundaries of Christian love, and then the origin of Christian love. So first, the nature of Christian love. And the point that I want to drive at is this, is that Christian love or the love that comes from God is free and gratuitous. It is unearned and it requires nothing in return. It's unearned, given freely, and it requires nothing in return. Throughout this whole sermon, I want to contrast two kinds of love. Of course, there's the love that's common to this world, and Jesus recognizes that in 46 and 47. He says, if you love those who love you, what, you know, what kind of medal do you want for that? What reward do you have? What badge do you think that you've earned? Everyone does that. Do not even tax collectors do the same. And then he says, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing? Everyone does that. Do not even the Gentiles do the same. So I just want to break that down for a moment. Jesus is saying here that it's really, there's really nothing special about loving those who love you. It's not difficult. It doesn't require any kind of special help from the Holy Spirit. Even the most selfish people are able to love those who love them. And it's not hard to include those who include you. Uh, even the most selfish people are able to do that. Why is that? And it's, it's because of this principle that Jesus is driving at. The love of this world is transactional. Uh, it's always earned and it always requires something in return. There's an economy to it. It's an exchange. It's actually a complicated form of self-love. I love myself. I love what benefits me. And sometimes other people are a part of that. I love others only insofar as it benefits me. I'm willing to make this investment because I get this return. I include them because I want them to include me. I invite them to my party. I want them to invite me to their party. I give to them because they give to me. It's transactional. I mean, just think about we're, we're, not, we're, you know, we're drawing near Christmas. Of course, we've, we've got a few other holidays first, but Christmas is coming up. And think about kind of just how we do Christmas. Even if we try hard not to, this is what happens. Christmas is supposed to be the season of just gratuitous love and gift giving and self-sacrifice. But when you're making your Christmas list, at least I'll speak for myself, don't you just do a little bit of calculus and a little bit of weighing of the scales. I mean, you probably got a list of friends that you buy for and they buy gifts for you and you try not to spend more on them than they do on you. So it's like, okay, Tommy usually spends like $30 on me. So that's, I'm gonna do that for him. I'm gonna get him something for 30 bucks. Cindy's never gotten me a gift, so I'm not gonna get her anything. But if she does get me something, I'm gonna be kind of embarrassed that I didn't get her anything and I'll get her something next year. Joey, he always goes all out. He spends like 100 bucks, so that's what I'm gonna do for him. And we hope that when it's all said and done, we're basically like net zero. Um, we've received at least as much as we've spent. That's, that's the love of this world. It's, it's a transaction. It's an exchange. But Jesus says that Christian love, the love that the Christian has that they get from God, uh, is not that. It's something more. Uh, so there's love that's common to this world, and then there's this something more, and that's the love of God, which is not of this world. And Jesus says that that's what our love must be like. He says in verse 45 of God, it says, He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good, and He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. The love of God 
it's important for us to see here that the love of God is gratuitous. It's given freely. It's not earned. As a matter of fact, it cannot be earned, uh, and it requires no repayment. As a matter of fact, it cannot be repaid, even if we wanted to. So Jesus is saying that God does not just love those who love him, but God loves those even who ignore him. God loves those who hate him and deny him. And he sends his blessings, his son and his reign on, the, on both the good and on the evil because there is an aspect to the love of God that is just radically free. It's gratuitous. That's the amazing love of God. It cannot be earned. It cannot be repaid. Uh, sometimes when my daughter Lucy, who is seven, when she gets in trouble and she's got a consequence and she regrets her actions and she wants to get out of her consequence, she says, Dad, I'll give you anything. I'll give you my money. I'll give you my toys. I'll, I'll give you anything if you just let me watch a video or let, or let me do this. And if you think about that, I don't know if your children do that too, but it's kind of an absurd thought that a seven-year-old or a five-year-old or a ten-year-old actually believes that they can give you something that you need or that you don't already have. Um, there's nothing that Lucy can give me except herself, her love and her obedience. And that's what I really want from her. But my love, my love for her is gratuitous. She's done nothing to earn it, and she can do nothing to repay it. Uh, there's nothing that I require in return. That's just the, the love between a parent and a child. But how much more in our relationship with God? We are, Lucy is not my peer, and we are not peers of God. He's the creator. We're his creature. Uh, we have nothing that we can give to God to earn anything from him, and we have nothing that we can give to repay him. He, he just wants you. He wants your attention and your obedience, your affection, um, he, and for you to draw near to him. So the point is that the more of Christian love, that what makes it different from the love of this world is that it is gratuitous and it's not transactional. Um, so just a quick application. So for us, when people get involved with us, as believers, or whether it's with you as a friend or a neighbor, or even when they get wrapped up in this community that we're creating together, this thing that we call St. John, they should encounter this love. They should encounter a love that doesn't expect anything from them. I have a lot of friends that don't believe like I do, um, and I, I want to see them come to believe. I don't make any, uh, I don't make any, I don't make a secret about that. I want them to come to know Jesus and I love them, and I try to actively love them, but I do not expect, uh, I don't love them with the expectation that they've got to come to church or that they've got to believe in Jesus or do anything to repay me because that would be transactional. It's a gratuitous love. I love them in the hope that my imperfect, in my imperfect love, they will see a refracted ray of the love of Jesus for them, which is gratuitous and free. So we have to cultivate that in our lives and in our community. That's the nature of Christian love. Secondly, the boundaries of Christian love. Whom are we to love in this way? What are the boundaries of Christian love? Jesus first quotes from Leviticus in this passage, and he adds an interpretation to it. He says in verse 43, he says, You've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, if you go back and read Leviticus, it does say, You shall love your neighbor as yourself, but it does not say, Hate your enemy. This is something that was added. So what's going on there? Well, the scribes and the Bible scholars of Jesus' day 
added that interpretation. They looked at Leviticus and they say, okay, God's calling us to love our neighbor. And then they asked the question that was still being asked in Jesus' day, and we still ask even today, well, who is my neighbor? What does God mean when he says neighbor? And they also noticed that in the Old Testament, it not only talked about your neighbor, but it also talked about the sojourner or the foreigner who's among you. That's the person that's not like you. And then it also talks about the enemy, the one that's aggressive toward you. And so they reasoned, okay, the sojourner's the one that's not like me. Um, the enemy is the one that's aggressive toward me. So my neighbor, when Leviticus says, love your neighbor, that's my friend, that's my fellow Israelite, um, that's the one who looks like me and believes like I do, that's the one that I'm supposed to love. But Jesus says that's, a, that's not at all what that text is saying. That's not what that means. He teaches here and elsewhere, especially in the famous passage about the Good Samaritan, um, that everyone is our neighbor. When God says neighbor, there's no, there's no boundary there. Uh, some of your neighbors look like you and they believe like you do. Um, some of them look very different. Some of them believe very different. They have different values. And even others of your neighbors are aggressive toward you and they mistreat you, but all of them are your neighbor. And you're called to love each of them. Jesus says in verse 44, he says, but I, he's clarifying, I say to you, love your enemies. Even your enemy is your neighbor. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So this is the point with the boundaries of Christian love. There are no boundaries to Christian love. At least I cannot find any in scripture. Uh, we can exclude no one from Jesus' call to love. And because some of our neighbors are our enemies, the call to love is also often a call to suffer. So here are a few applications. Uh, the first is that you do have enemies. And you might be thinking, you know, I don't have any enemies. I'm a pretty peaceful person. Um, I try, you know, I try to keep the peace with everybody and I'm pretty chill. But, you know, yes, you do. And in, in the words of uh, Drake, my favorite theologian, I got enemies, got a lot of enemies. Got a lot of people trying to drain me of this energy. Um, first of all, there are people who mistreat us. And I like how Bonhoeffer defined the enemy, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He said, your enemy is anyone who's acting aggressively toward you. So a neighbor can become an enemy, a friend can become an enemy, even your spouse um, can become an enemy in just a moment's time. It's anyone that's acting aggressively toward you. Uh, people in your church can become an enemy. And that's the person that you're called to love, the one that's acting aggressively toward you. People act out in aggression toward us every day in small ways and in big ways. And in each of those moments, we have an opportunity to love the enemy. So there's, there's those who mistreat us, but then there's also... Uh, enemies of the gospel and people that are not even aware that they're enemies of the gospel. They may not behave aggressively toward us, but they are aggressive toward Jesus. There are ideological opponents. Um, they think that what we believe is crazy or harmful. Uh, they cling to values and promote values that we think are crazy and harmful, that are contrary to God's laws, and just have a radically different vision of the world and of life than we do. And I used to be one of these people. This is what I, I wasn't raised in the church. But they're antagonistic toward Christian faith, toward the church, toward Jesus himself. And these are also our enemies. Now, why would that be? It's not because we don't like them. I have plenty of friends like this, and, and I love spending time with them. I care about them. I want them to know Jesus like I do. It's because they don't like Jesus. They don't believe in him. 
and we are with Jesus. And so these are also the people that we are called to love, as like Jesus loves. So how do we do that? And Jesus says at least three things here. He says, first of all, pray for them. He says, pray for them that persecute you. Now, these are both people that mistreat us and then also just, just people that are outside of the church. Pray for them that persecute you. Whether they're people that, that are persecuting you or people that are persecuting Jesus, we should be praying for them. And I'm not going to go into that much, but pray for them. And then he says, do good to them. Uh, loving our neighbor and our enemy is not just about having warm feelings or nice thoughts toward them, but it's also about serving them and actively doing good to them. Jesus says of the Father that he, he actually upholds the lives, at least for the time being, of those who reject him. It says that he sends his son and his reign on the unjust and the undeserving. God actively does good toward those who hate him. So we look for ways to, to serve them and to bless them. And then finally, include them. And this is one that I want to focus on a little bit more. Jesus says in verse 47, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. So to greet someone in scripture is part of the larger concept of hospitality and invitation and opening a door. Listen to what Jesus says about this elsewhere in Luke 14. This is a slightly different context, but he says, when you give a dinner or a banquet, when you throw a party, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you, and in return you be repaid. Now that's that transactional love we're talking about. He says, but for you, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. There's nothing you can gain from that, Jesus says. And he says, but the Lord notices you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And we talk about this a lot about, uh, we talk about this a lot at St. John. Um, this is what we are doing here. We're creating a community of disciples around Jesus and we are constantly looking for opportunities and creating opportunities to invite people into that community. Because this is how the enemies of Jesus get turned into his friends. It's through a prolonged exposure to his people and to his word, where people have time to hear and consider the gospel. And people have time actually to see how the gospel shapes our lives and shapes our community together. So here's how I sometimes put it. We're creating a culture of invitation with many on-ramps. And that's, why, that's, that's driving what we're doing here. That's why we try to create a space that's inviting, create a worship service that's accessible, and then more than that, create a lot of different opportunities for people to get swept up into community with, with everything that we do, with gatherings and events and, and, and the things that we do. But just remember this. This is the point that I want to make in all of that. When we create a culture of invitation, we're never inviting people to events. We're always inviting people into community. That's, that's what we're opening the door to. Come be in relationship with me. That's what John says in, in his letter to First John. He says, we have fellowship with the Father. We're inviting you to be in relationship with us, and we have fellowship with the Father. We want to share that with you. So whether you have, whether it's having a few friends from church over for dinner and you invite your neighbors to join, or whether you invite some, a neighbor to an event we're doing as a church, or you might even invite them to come worship with us on Sunday, on one level, it's all the same. We're always just inviting them into our community. Jesus says that we should not just greet, welcome, and invite those who look and believe like we do. 
but also those who do not, those who are, are enemies or enemies of the gospel. So that's the boundaries of Christian love. And then point number three, the origins of Christian love. The love of God it's, is something more. It's easy to love those who love us. It's hard to love people that are not like us. It's almost impossible to love people that mistreat us. How can we possibly do what Jesus is calling us to do here? And here's the point. Only as we connect ourselves to the source of this love can we love others like this. Christian love is more because of where it comes from, because of its heavenly origins. Jesus, again, shows us the source of this love in verses 44 and 45. He says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. When we love our enemies, whether they're people who mistreat us or people who don't believe as we do, we're imitating God because that's what God does. But more than this, we have to see not just that God loves his enemies in general, but how God loves us. God's love for us is freely given, it's unearned, and requires nothing in return. And the fancy theological term for that is grace. God's love knows no boundaries. Uh, Jesus died not for those who loved him, but he died for those who were his enemies in order to save them and make them into his friends. This is what John teaches in his first letter in, in 1 John chapter 4. He says, this is love, not that we have loved God. It's not that we loved God and that's what motivated him to come and die for us. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Then he says, beloved, if God so loved us, that's how we ought to love one another. Jesus didn't die for people that deserved it. He didn't die for us because we deserved it. He died for the undeserving. And you will never be able to love those who hate you or to love those who hate Jesus until you see that not only did he die for his enemies, but that you were one of those enemies and that you were, you were among that population and he died for you. You were an enemy of God. You ignored God. You were disobedient and ungrateful. And the gospel is that God cared about you long before you ever cared about him. And that's why he sent his son to be your savior. And even if you're sitting here today and you've been a Christian for a long time and been in church for a long time, even if you're an ordained pastor, um, you're still hard to love. I know, I'm your pastor. I'm just kidding. Um, you're still hard to love. You're still slow to repent. You're still self-focused, but Jesus still loves you. And he still prays for you. Hebrews teaches that he's at the right hand of the Father, even now interceding for us. He still walks with you. He still works on you. Um, he is still saving you from your own worst enemy, which is yourself. And as you believe that gospel and press into that gospel and delight and rest in that reality, uh, you will find the resources that you need to love difficult people and people that are aggressive toward you. There's a songwriter named Nathan Partain who wrote a wonderful song called, I Am One of Those. And here's two stanzas from that song. He says, I am one of those who was a leper and contagious, the deformities and scars I have today. Yet while I was vile with sickness, Jesus loved me. And he healed, restored, and through and through remade. I am one of those who was doomed to death in prison, and I've done more evil things than I could say. Jesus broke inside and there unlocked my shackles. And to set me free, he died and took my place. And that's the gospel. The more, the more you realize, I am one of those. 
I am one of those enemies of God. I am one of those aggressive people. I am one of those stubborn, obstinate people. I'm one of those, and Jesus loved me. He conquered me with his redeeming love. When you see that, you can say, well, if he can forgive me of my three million sins, then I can be gracious toward this person's three sins against me or 30 or whatever it might be because whatever the number is, mine are far greater. And we can become a church that loves and invites the enemy and the outsider with an offer of peace in Jesus' name. To that end, let us pray.